God, those communists are amazing. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Turn Leftist Podcast. I'm Mike, he, him. And tonight I'm here with Sterling, he, him. Ward, he, him. And our guest, Declan, they, them. How's it going, Declan? I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Doing good. Glad to have you on here, comrades. So tonight we're going to talk about the IRA. Obviously, you know, as a bunch of Marxists, we love the IRA. I've been excited to talk about the IRA for a couple of weeks now since we uh, set this topic. But um, so we're going to go into a little of the history and uh, looking at the amount of material that you have here and then the amount of time that we just spent ranting about Squid Game and Dave Chappelle's new special. We may not get to all of it. So if this has to be a two parter, uh, that will be fine. But um, yeah, we can just start right off with a little bit of an introduction into the IRA for people who are unfamiliar. So here's a quote that Declan put in here from a book called One Man's Terrorist, A Political History of the IRA by uh, Daniel Finn. In a survey for the Pentagon, the Rand Corporation described the IRA as, quote, one of the most ruthless and capable insurgent forces in modern history. During the 1970s and 80s, Northern Ireland and West Germany were the two most important theaters for the British Army. British generals often preferred to downplay the significance of Operation Banner as their Northern Irish campaign was known. In fact, the conflict was far more typical of the Army's experience after 1945 than its preparations for a hot war on the German front that never came. From the decolonization struggles of the 1950s and 60s to the occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan, British forces have usually found themselves pitted against irregular combatants who wage war with rifles and car bombs rather than tanks and artillery. In belated recognition of that fact, high-ranking officers have started referring to the lessons of Operation Banner, claiming that recent wars in the Middle East demonstrated, quote, the particular techniques and the levels of expertise learnt through hard experience both on the streets and in the fields of Northern Ireland. From a very different standpoint, critical historians of the war on terror have begun to recognize the importance of Northern Ireland for any serious account for the British state's record. That's a long way of saying the IRA was fucking badass and has influenced a lot of other guerrilla fighters and people who want to make, uh, what do you call it, uh, Ward? Slanted warfare or um, unequal warfare? Asymmetrical warfare. Thank you, buddy. And so I didn't know that there was a green book for the IRA. Like, I know about Gaddafi's green book, but I didn't know there was an IRA green book. But of course, that makes perfect sense. So this is a quote in the green book by Tim Pat Coogan. And it's chapter one, the green book of the IRA. And he says, Quote, commitment to the Republican movement is the firm belief that its struggle, both military and political, is morally justified, that war is morally justified, and that the army is the direct representative of the 1918 Dal Aran parliament, and that as such, they are the legal and lawful government of the Irish Republic, which has the moral right to pass laws for and to claim jurisdiction over the territory, airspace, mineral resources, means of production, distribution and exchange, and all of its people, regardless of creed or loyalty. So let's get into uh, the Irish War of Independence. So this is, yeah, this is the early 20th century. This is 1916 to 1921. Yeah, um, so basically, uh, I'm actually going to, I didn't put these in here, but I'm going to jump a little bit beforehand. I'm not sure exactly the years, but I know the Irish potato famine began, like, right after the American Civil War, I want to say, like, 1870s, 1880s. So basically, yeah, so there's this huge, like, potato famine, and there were tens of thousands of Irish people were just like, you know, there's mass starvation and there was like a job shortage as well i believe but basically the british what they did was the british army came in and i'm not sure if i'm entirely right on this but they came in and they like instead of like taxing the irish they just took a bunch of their food because yeah, I was gonna say, the thing about the potato famine was that ireland was a net exporter of food while their yeah. people were starving yeah so the british government claimed that they needed food for their soldiers right and so they just, yeah, they just like took a bunch of their food and a mass famine ensued and like thousands of Irish people starved. And yeah. it was, yeah, like pretty significant event. That's pretty fucked up. 
Yeah, no, it it's sowed. So the famine sowed like the seeds for Xin Fen and the movement to begin, you know, moving forward. And yeah, it's just like everything hit a uh, breaking point in like 1916, like right around when, you know, the Russian Revolution was happening, which is, yeah, it's like that whole period of, you know, the 1910s is a pretty significant period in all of Europe, not just in Ireland. Just to go on like a, a slight fucking rant, the idea that, you know, they accuse communists like Stalin and Mao of intentionally starving their own citizens while monarchism is literally doing that in Ireland, like literally starving Irish people, not to mention having starved Indian people. But then also like even here in America, it's literally the exact same thing to let your people go hungry while you are spending billions of dollars, like trillions of dollars on your military. You know what I mean? Like it literally is just a, a decision like that could be reversed. You could use that money to feed and house people or to give them fucking health care and just capitalism doing exactly what it accuses communism of doing every time. But so I continue, definitely. Oh, no, that was, that was all I had, but... Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll get into the Irish War of Independence. And so did you say that there was something that you wanted to set up before I get into uh, what we have here in the notes? Uh, no, I mean, I pretty much did. Like, it was just, you know, there were decades of starvation and, like, just uh, wealth inequality, and the British were basically allowed to, like, you know, go into Ireland whenever the hell they wanted to and uh, take whatever they wanted, because Ireland was a British colony for, like, some 700-odd years. Yeah. And... Yeah, they got sick of it, and they saw what the Russians were doing, so they are just like, so yeah. centuries of domination and colonization, but then also everything coming to a head because things were getting particularly bad in the decades before this Irish War of Independence. Yeah. So um, what we have here is, uh, it is reasonable to say that an innate resentment to the landed gentry was present in most Kerry people, or even most Irish people, in the decades leading up to the War of Independence. Memories of evictions, unreasonable taxes, and rundown estates due to absenteeism fueled such resentment and distrust. The revolution produced many skirmishes and casualties by combat, but many more people died without a gun in their hands, at their doors, in quarries, or empty fields, shot in the back by masked men. And that's from the IRA and Kerry, 1916 to 1921. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, the British soldiers would just like, yeah, they could come into Ireland whenever the, they felt like it. And you guys were talking about the Contras and like how they would just like shoot people in Nicaragua whenever they felt like it. And they would take a bunch of drugs. And, but yeah, it just, it goes to show that like, just imperialism. I don't know where I was going with that. Well, you reminded me, Declan, I forgot to point out quite enough when we were talking about the Contras and the Nicaragua episodes, just how much of death squads they were. Like, they just were death squads. Like, I, I don't think I made that quite clear. Like, I know we talked a good amount about how they would come in and just kill women and children, you know, kill people indiscriminately. But that is literally what they were set up to do was they were designated as death squads. But um, yeah, fucking colonialism. Yeah, dude. But yeah, the, the Black and Tans, they were like literal death squads. They would just go into Ireland and just like shoot whoever the fuck they felt like it. And if you spoke Irish at them, they would kill you. So yeah, they tried to get everyone. Uh, and they, they're pretty good at that, just eradicating the Irish language. And, um, you know, at least now in Ireland, they're, uh, they're finally like, I think in the 90s, what they started, they started doing like, you know, the uh, dual language learning where kids in Ireland have to learn English and they have some classes in Irish. Mm -hmm. And even though, like, all over Ireland, everyone still speaks English just because it's, like, it's convenient and you could talk with, like, the rest of Europe. But, um, mm -hmm. yeah, there are some, like, very, very rural parts of the country where it's, like, you can just, like, walk around and just find people, like, speaking Irish to each other in, like, bars and shit. And it's usually, like, old people. Like, my grandparents, they came over in the 60s, I think. Mm -hmm. And, um, like, they, whenever they didn't want us to, like, you know, know what we were talking about, like, they would just, like, start speaking in Irish. And it was, like, we would just get really pissed off because you were just like, what? Yeah. Yeah, I don't even know yeah. what it sounds like. It's a really weird sounding language. It's just like, you know, <laughs> one of the one of the comrades on the Discord said it's like just weird fairy island speak. And that's exactly <laughs> what it sounds, that's exactly what it sounds like. 
I'm definitely going to look you, up YouTube videos of people speaking Irish. Do you do you speak Irish? Uh, a little bit. Um, it's I'm like by no means great at it, but um, I use a dictionary. Like whenever I'm good at like typing it, but like I can't like half the words I just can't say. It's just mm-hmm. and it's 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 really weirdly structured. Like yeah. like English is like I am, you know, Declan, right? But like Irish, it would be like Declan, I am. Right. So it's like you put like the subject before the description, if that makes yeah. sense. It's just it's really confusing to English speakers. Huh. That's how Japanese is. Yeah. You fucking weep. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Mandarin. <laughs> uh, all right. So let's get into um, a brief summary of some of the Irish War of Independence. So the Irish War of Independence began after the 1916 Easter Rising. The Easter Rising was carried out by members of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Uh, the precursor to the IRA, and members of the Irish Citizens' Army. It was done to protest British rule in Ireland. At first, the Irish had planned to have a larger number of men attack the city, but a man named Sir Roger Casement was captured on the way back from Germany with guns. This was a massive hit since the Irish were outgunned by British forces. As a result, only about 1,250 men took part in the Rising. Out of these, about 300 went into the General Post Office, the GPO, in Dublin, led by Patrick Pierce and James Connolly. Other groups took over different parts of the city, for example, St. Stephen's Green, uh, Shelburne Hotel, Bolin's Mills, and Jacob's Factory. At first, the British put up no resistance because of the Easter public holiday, but soon more of them came into Dublin to fight the Irish. And so the biggest fighting happened at Bolin's Mills, where Eamon de Valera had his men open fire on the British soldiers called Sherwood Foresters while they landed in the city. That's pretty funny. The shootings here killed about 200 people and wounded several more. 16 of the Irish leaders were shot by firing squad after the rising. The British admitted that they lost 155 men to Irish gunfire and 200 were wounded. The Irish rebels lost at least 70 men, and over 1,000 of them were wounded. At least 100 Irish citizens were killed in the crossfire as well. After the Rising, Dublin was in very bad shape, and several hundred people had been killed. So I didn't even know about the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the IRB, before this. Yeah, um, so before the IRA, there was the IRB, and, like, it, you know, it was like, I mean, the IRA was never official either. Like, the, um, the only difference, I think, and... Anyone could correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the IRA just had like a political wing uh, mm-hmm. as well as like, you know, an actual like established army with ranks. The IRA had Sinn Féin, which were like, you know, the Republican political party that were present in Ireland and they wanted a united Ireland and like Irish independence and sovereignty and stuff. But yeah, the IRB was like they were totally decentralized, just a bunch of different groups of just random guys with guns pretty much. So Sinn Féin, and I don't know if you know this, Declan, but like Sinn Féin being the political wing of the IRA, but now also like a major party in Ireland, and I think, are they still in power now? Uh, I, I believe so, um, but I'm not entirely sure, but they've definitely like liberalized, if that makes sense. That was my question, is yeah. how lived up did they get? Because I know they were at least in power recently if they're not still, so it's like, how, how much have they compromised? Because they're obviously not setting car bombs off, like. Yeah, and so we're gonna get yeah we're gonna get to this later, but um so there's the like somewhere in the sixties there was like the provisional IRA and there was the OIRA the original IRA which mm. were like the, so the OIRA they were like the Marxist Leninists like they were yeah. like yeah we want like a thirty two county socialist republic and we want to take the North back by force and they kind of just became irrelevant sometime in like the eighties unfortunately but yeah I mean the provisional IRA they still did like base stuff but like. A lot of them were like very, uh, not like very anti-communist, but like they're pretty like, you know, the anti-communism from Britain really carried over because uh, they, yeah. they got a lot of like British media and stuff like that. So, you know, yeah. It but they're like um, Sean Bean's character would be like the OIRA 
in uh, Patriot Games. Sorry, I don't know if you guys know the movie that I'm just referencing. I have not seen that. (laughs) And then then his uh, other people that he ends up murking at the end to go get Harrison Ford would be like the PIRA. They're like a little more lived up. They don't want to be as violent. And he's like, no, I got to go kill Harrison Ford right now. Well, no, okay. So the PIRA, like the provisionals, they still were like violent as fuck. Like they just wanted independence. They didn't want so. That still tracks, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, um, and we're going to get further into this. So I'll just, uh, I'll let you continue. All right, cool. Okay, so then to get into more about the IRB and turning into the IRA. So over the duration of the war, 82 IRB members were killed, including 16 who were executed. Okay, so a note on those uh, 16. The 16 who were killed are colloquially referred to as the leaders of 16. This slogan is referenced in the popular Irish rebel song, Come Out Your Black and Tans by the Wolf Tones, with the lyric being, when the leaders of 16 were executed. And we'll definitely close with that. Such a good song. I love that song, dude. For sure. It's stuck in my head for a week since I started reading this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so these executions angered the Irish people and caused many people to become Republicans. Republicans lived mostly in the south of Ireland. And these are not Republicans, obviously, like we know in America. These people are based. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, these they, are way cooler Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, at that time, they were like, I'm not sure if they're like explicitly socialist, but they just wanted like the Republic of Ireland, right? Yeah. So they just, they just wanted sovereignty and like, you know, they just wanted the British to get the fuck out of there. So. Like the People's Republic of Ireland. Like, <laughs> yeah. No, no, they weren't like, yeah, no, they weren't like super hardline, like, yeah, socialism, dude. Like, they, yeah, because yeah. as I said before, there were a bunch of them that were just like, oh, I don't know about this whole socialism thing, guys. But, yeah, you yeah, know. yeah. Sounds scary. Yeah. Okay, so Republicans live mostly in the south of Ireland. Ulster was considered to be the most unionist part of Ireland, meaning the most loyal to England. So this was caused by, what did you guess? This was caused by the Ulster plantations. Uh. The unionists wanted to stay under control of the British government. Could you believe that word? Could you believe like people who own plantations wanted to stay under uh, monarchist control and not uh, hand anything over to socialism? No, I'm completely shocked. Why would I'm they baffled. side with them? You know, <laughs> I mean, aren't they? They're Irish too, right? I mean, like, wouldn't they just want a united Ireland? I don't yeah. Know. yeah, yeah, you would think. Fucking Irish kulaks. <laughs> Irish kulaks and gasanos, man. Really. Yeah, there's a um, there's a movie with uh, Cillian Murphy called The Wind That Shakes the Barley, and some more of the topics we'll get into later will be like referenced in that movie. But yeah, so they, they talked about like the Ulster, you know, plantation owners in that movie a lot. And I can't remember exactly. I, I can't remember if uh, Cillian Murphy's character was like talking to, cause his brother was like a loyalist mm-hmm. after like the treaty. And he was just like, yeah, these, uh, these Ulster plantation guys, like they're wrapped up in the fucking union, Jack, like that's the butcher's apron boy. And I was like, oh, that's, geez. that's yeah. such a base quote. I do like him in uh, Peaky Blinders. I fucking love that show. Oh. Yeah, I like that show a lot, too. It's so good. Okay, so in 1917, the IRB was renamed the IRA, and in 1919, the fighting started. So just getting even more base, changing from the Irish Republican Brotherhood to the Irish Republican Army. It's like, yeah, we actually need business now. Like, fuck you. <laughs> um, so in 1919, the fighting started. By 1921, the IRA had beaten the Royal Irish Constabulary, the RIC, and Ireland had no police forces. In London, the British government began to debate about Ireland's rule. The war went on until 1922 when Irish Sinn Féin leaders and British MPs made a peace treaty called the Anglo-Irish Treaty. This treaty created the Irish Free State. This meant that Ireland was made its own independent country. The treaty gave all the same rights to the Irish government as that of the Canadian government. It handed power of 26 of the 32 counties to the Irish government. The six counties that were kept by the British government were all in Ulster, mostly Unionist, and now formed Northern Ireland. So it is its own country, but only the southern part of it, like the north of Ireland is still under British rule the way that Canada is, correct? Um, so here's the thing. Um, at the time, yeah, Canada and, like, Northern Ireland, like, had, you know, they were, they were set up the same way. So, yeah, the North is, like, part of the UK, 
right? Um, so it's England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. Like whenever you hear UK, that's it. But now the Canadians, like Canada's independent, but they, you know, they didn't like forcefully declare their independence or anything. They just kind of asked nicely. And like, I think it was the seventies. And then uh, Britain was just like, yeah, sure. It sounds super Canadian. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I mean, even now, like even today, like Northern Ireland is still like a part of the United Kingdom and like it still uses like British pounds. And but Ireland think, is not part of the UK. No, Ireland is part of the EU, actually. They're not, oh, yeah, okay. they're not, they're, they're part of the European Union. They're not part of the UK. But yeah, I mean, That's I have my own opinions on the EU, but whatever. <laughs> Declan's a Brexiter. I'm not a Brexiter. Jesus Christ. No, I don't know. I'm just fucking around. Isn't Poland also trying to exit now? Well, here's the thing. I mean, Poland exit. Yeah, Poland exit. I mean, look, the Britain can do whatever the fuck they want. I don't care. They can fuck themselves up. Like, but yeah, I don't know. I'm not like exactly pro European Union, but like I'm not, you know, pro Brexit. I don't know. Okay, so now we'll get into the split. So the first split came after the Anglo-Irish Treaty in 1921, with supporters of the treaty forming the nucleus of the National Army of the newly created Irish Free State while the anti-treaty forces continued to use the name Irish Republican Army. After the end of the Irish Civil War, 1922-23, the IRA was around in one form or another for 40 years, when it split into the official IRA and the provisional IRA in 1969. The latter then had its own breakaways, namely the real IRA and the continuity IRA, each claiming to be the true successor of the Army of the Irish Republic. Go ahead, Douglas. Uh, I just wanted to, I, I forgot to put this in there, but I just wanted to clarify. So the Irish Civil War was like the pro-treaty IRA versus the anti-treaty IRA. So the pro-treaty IRA, they were just like, okay, well, if we just give them the North, then, you know, uh, they'll leave. They'll leave us alone and it'll be cool. Like, we'll all be fine, right? Mm-hmm. And like the anti-treaty were like, no, we want all of Ireland and we, we want like complete total sovereignty. And mm-hmm. so they were fighting for like a year about that. And yeah. Do you have any idea, like, what was their plan to take over even the Unionist parts of, like, Northern Ireland with the plantations and everything, like, protracted people's war in Ireland? Yeah, I think it was something to that extent, but, yeah, I mean, like, you know, Mao hadn't, like, helped with the protracted people's war yet, so, like, you know, that wasn't an example yet, but, like, yeah, so probably something like that. I'm not not entirely sure about that, but I I definitely have to look more into that. I just didn't know if you happened to know off the top of your head, but, uh... Yeah, no. Yeah, I can imagine that being, like, a almost like a Trotskyist split, like, these people want permanent war, like, we are not going to stop until we have this whole fucking island, as opposed to the other guys who are like, look, we have our, our section here, we'll do socialism in three quarters of a country. Yeah, I mean, and, they, and that's the sad part, they didn't even get to do that, or at least not to the extent that it was like, you know, I, I forget exactly why, but yeah, you're right about the whole Trotsky thing. The pro-treaty IRA were essentially like, I mean, while they might not have been, like, overtly loyal to the British throne, they were pretty much appeasing the British, mm-hmm. you know? Because they were like, yeah, we want to keep the North because all the, all the fucking like, money's there, dude. Like, we, we want to keep it. And the uh, anti-treaty IRA, they really wanted the North because that's the source of the money. They wanted to just like, seize all these plantations from like, you know, the wealthy landowners. So, Yeah, that was the impression I got is that all the money is coming from the North, and that's why yeah. they made the compromise that they did. So speaking of Trotskyist splits, these are the branches of the IRA. This is just from Wikipedia, and there are eight of them. <laughs> so there's the Irish Republican Army, 1919 to 22, known as the Old IRA in later years was recognized by the first dial as the legitimate army of the Irish Republic in April 1921 due to the fact that it had fought in the Irish War of Independence. Okay, so there's, there's still the Irish Republican army, but from 22 to 69. And this is the anti-treaty IRA, which fought and lost the Civil War and thereafter refused to recognize either the Irish Free State or Northern Ireland, deeming both of them to be creations of British imperialism. It existed in one form or another for 40 years before it split in 1969. There's the official IRA, or the OIRA, 
This is the remainder of the IRA after the 1969 split from the provisionals. It was primarily Marxist in its political orientation. And it's now active in a military sense, while its political wing, official Sinn Féin, became the Workers' Party of Ireland. So that's a different branch of Sinn Féin then, the official Sinn Féin, and that's a more militant version of Sinn Féin? I believe so, yeah. So there's Sinn Féin, and then the provisional IRA, and then there's the official IRA and the official Sinn Féin. Like, they, okay. they were, like, the first, you know? I love, like I they, love how they're doing this. Like, yeah, no, like, those guys read Marx, they read Lenin, they knew what the fuck they were doing. And, like, yeah. all half the guys were just like, oh, no socialism, please. We, we're not going to win if we do that, so... Well, how about the Workers' Party of Ireland? So are they still around? Because that, that's I, what the I, official Sinn Féin became, like... I'm not entirely sure, like, you know, the details of that, but I think they might have just, like, conceded and merged into Sinn Féin, but um, mm. at, at least, like, you know, there was a generational period where it was, like, yeah, the younger people of, like, yeah, the official Sinn Féin party, the Marxists, they were just like, eh, whatever, we'll just fucking join the libs, fuck it. Yeah. You know? I mean, the IRA, like, they'll they'll still do, like, you know, demonstrations and stuff, like, uh, during, like, Easter Rising on, like, the anniversary of that. Like, they'll come out in all their drip with their guns and stuff. And they'll just, like, mm. walk around, like, the streets of, like, Dublin. And uh, they, they can't do it in the north because, like, you know, the fucking police will just, like, yeah, just turn on them. Yeah. But, um, yeah, like, in parts of, like, the south and just the rest of Ireland, yeah, they'll just, like, parade around and people will be like, fuck yeah, dude. Like, you know. Are they allowed to have their guns in Ireland, or are they are they I'm doing not, it illegally and they're just they don't give a fuck? Like I'm I'm not sure. I mean, some of them have guns, but um, I'm not sure exactly gun laws in Ireland. But yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure some I've seen pictures of them out with guns, but like I'm sure like yeah. you know they outgun cops there, so they're just like yeah, we're just not gonna fuck with them. I've always wondered how they got to have mostly ARs. It seems like it seems like every time I see pictures of people in the IRA, they always have those long. ARs like the Vietnam style, and I don't know yeah, if it's like they got them from M16 A2s. Yeah. yeah, dude. And it's like, did they get them from Gaddafi, who got them from America? Like, where did those all come from? Like, I, Ward, would you know? Because I'm not entirely sure, but that's that's my assumption. Um, that's what I'm thinking is that they got them from Gaddafi because they also have it. There's also tons of videos where they got fucking AKs and shit too. True, true. I have seen those. Yeah, so um, I have a article here that I forgot to put in the notes, but basically, so there was a secret IRA-Soviet agreement in 1925. So it says here, in the summer of 1925, just two years after the IRA's defeat in the Civil War, the organization sent a delegation to Moscow to solicit finance and weaponry from the Soviet Union. According to Tim Pat Coogan, the Russians asked their guests, how many bishops did you hang? And when the answer was none, they replied, ah, you people are not serious at all. So basically, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> but um, basically, um, so the IRA was, it says the IRA was in contact with Red Army intelligence officers in London and New York. And it was in the former that the monthly stipend was handed over. So basically, it just goes into this whole thing. And you can cut this if it's like not making a ton of sense, but no, it's cool. Stone, did you have a joke though? No, I was just uh, pulling a Jamie. I looked up the laws in Ireland for guns, and I didn't know if you guys actually wanted that information. I mean, yeah. I'll go for it, dude. Yeah, so it is legal to own firearms in Ireland, but the law is on a, is this real strict approval process? There's no guarantee you'll be approved. Basically, you put a registration in, and they review it, and like the large majority, in fact, it's almost the entirety of the approvals are on shotguns and other like hunting and sportsman Guns. Uh, okay. They they very they very rarely approve just handguns and rifles and stuff. And so any AR-15 you're seeing there is definitely left over from some oh, yeah. base shit. Like, yeah. Go ahead, Ward. Yep. All right. So I looked it up. According to Wikipedia, all their like AR-15s and like 
M16s were smuggled into Ireland by a man named George Harrison, a former army vet from World War II, who joined the uh, Irish Republican Sinn Féin, and he was smuggling them uh, M16s. Hell yeah. Not only a great songwriter and lead guitarist, but also just bass as fuck. Right? <laughs> Come on, I had to do it. But yeah, so basically, you'll see them with, like Mike, you pointed out, you'll see them with the M16s and like those other like traditionally American-made weapons or British-made weapons. But you'll also see them with, you know, Kalashnikovs, and that's because of the they had a secret agreement. They some of them went over to Moscow and like basically just uh, they talked to Stalin. They were just like, hey, can we get oh, some? Hell yeah, fucking, dude. <laughs> can we get some fucking AKs, dude? <laughs> I fucking love it. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it seems that most of their guns were either left over from World War II or given to them by Gaddafi or smuggled in by um, George Harrison. Hell yeah. I absolutely need pictures of like IRA members hanging out with Stalin now. There's got to be something out there. Dude, I hope so. I don't know if it got like, I don't know if they got all the way up the ranks. Words, like I can that. see Ward typing right now. Oh my God. I, 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 fucking, I fucking hope so because that would just be the most base shit and I would just probably <laughs> cry tears of joy. All right, let me get back into these splits in the, uh, in the IRA. So I just left off with the, the official IRA, the OIRA. So the opposite is the PIRA, the, the provisional IRA. Broke from the OIRA in 1969 due to abstentionism and differing views on how to deal with the increasing violence in Northern Ireland. Although it opposed the OIRA's Marxism, it came to develop a left-wing orientation and also increased its political activity. Eh, kind of lean. So yeah. the, con- the continuity IRA, the CIRA, broke from the PIRA in 1986 because the latter ended its policy. The latter ended its policy on abstentionism, thus recognizing the authority of the Republic of Ireland. Oh, oh, here we go. Here's a there's a little tidbit under the splits that says in April 2011, former members of the provisional IRA announced a resumption of hostilities and that they had now taken on the mantle of the mainstream IRA. They further claimed we continue to do so under the name of the Irish Republican Army. We are the IRA. And they insisted that they were entirely separate from the real IRA, Oglagna Hiran, and the continuity IRA. They claimed responsibility for the April assassination of PSNI Constable Ronan Kerr, as well as responsibility for other attacks that had previously been claimed by the real IRA and ONH. I'm not sure who Ronan Kerr is, but yeah, Mike, you were asking about like the IRA resuming activities, and I was like, oh, well, I guess they did. Yeah, nice. I couldn't find any pictures. Oh, I'm pretty oh. sad about that. Yeah. yeah, well, we'll do some deep research. We can find. I'm not that. sure. I'm not sure if they got like all the all the way up to Stalin, but I'm sure that you can find pictures of like IRA people with like Soviet delegates. Right. Yeah. yeah. But with Papa Stalin would be. Stalin. <laughs> I'm sick, bro. <laughs> That's if what I want to see. I want to see some guy in like a balaclava with one of the M16s standing next to Stalin. It would just be great. Uh, <laughs> not that we can. Not that we can't Photoshop it. Yeah, like the ski mask and the fucking uh, tracksuit with next yeah, to Stalin. Yeah. All right, so then there was, uh, I did the continuity IRA, uh, I believe. So the continuity IRA broke from the PIRA in 1986 because the, because the latter ended its policy on abstentionism. Then there's also the real IRA, the RIRA, 1997 breakaway from the PIRA consisting of members opposed to the Northern Ireland peace process. Now, the Northern Ireland peace process, wasn't that the end of pretty much the fighting between the IRA and the unionists? Basically, yeah. So in, in 97, there was a treaty. But yeah, they... I think the Northern Irish government and, um, you know, the loyalists, which are basically, yeah, in the United Kingdom, had talks with the actual, like, Irish Republican Army. And they basically were like, hey, we can come to this agreement and you'll stop fucking bombing the shit out of the North, please. And essentially, yeah, they're just like, ah, whatever, fine. Yeah. But yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I, I know they signed, like, official documents, but I'm not sure the terms of that treaty were. But yeah, basically, they were like, of course, there are people in the IRA that were like, what the fuck? No. Like, what are yeah. you doing? 
What I meant was the Northern Ireland peace process was the end of what everybody refers to as the Troubles, which is the next section yeah. we're going to get into. So yeah, which we, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that reminds me of like the Chad memes where uh, you got like the guy in the IRA get up, and then then you have the Trump. You know, MAGA had right, right, yeah. Oh, you're a Republican? Yes, brother. <laughs> he goes, uh, and th- then he says, uh, some, some, which IRA state are you quote. from? Yeah. <laughs> he's, yeah. He's like Ireland, and the guy gets all sweaty. Yeah. Um, all right. So, yeah, let's get into uh, the troubles. So, going from the troubles basically up to the present. So, in the 1930s, the leftist group achieved some success in overcoming the division between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. The refusal of IRA leadership to cooperate with this course led to further division. Frank Ryan led a part of the Congress group after Spain, where they were in the Spanish Civil War against General Francisco Franco. So in the 1960s, the brutal police action against the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Movement and raids by the Loyalist paramilitaries in 1967 brought the IRA back on the map. At that time, and up until the end of the 80s, the Northern Irish Catholics were in a legal vacuum and vulnerable to the whims of the official British-supported... What's that word, Declan? I've never seen that word. Um, let me see... Uh, Nordier Protestant police forces, yeah. It's it's just like, I'm not exactly sure what it was, but yeah, the Protestants were like largely the English. So. Okay. I'm just going to skip that Nordier word since I don't know what the fuck that is. But <laughs> So at that time, up until the end of the 80s, the Northern Irish Catholics were in a legal vacuum and were vulnerable to the whims of the official British-supported Protestant police forces and paramilitary groups. Open violence such as murder, torture, open prosecution, defamation and exclusion of qualified training and public offices were the norm for years for the Northern Irish Catholics. The IRA obtained the support of large parts of the Catholic population and were regarded as a, quote, protecting power. A small percentage of Irish Americans also supported the violence. Kind of based. Yeah, so you had, like, uh, people who, uh, Irish people who just, you know, emigrated to the States because they are just like, I'm fucking sick of this shit because the British people are just, like, you know, torturing us, so we're just going to mm-hmm. leave. And they're just like, yeah, yeah, get them so we can come back. I don't know. Yeah, right. So in the 60s, there were differences between the military the provisional-oriented and the Marxist-oriented officials. In 1969, the IRA further split into the, provisional, into the Provisional Irish Republican Army, the PIRA, and the official IRA, the OIRA, the Marxist-oriented group. Again, like we discussed in the splits there. So the official wing of the IRA never formally dissolved, but since 1980 had become no longer relevant. Yeah, and, and it goes back to the thing where it's just like, you know, it says since 1980, so that was like, it wasn't the height of the Red Scare, but like, yeah, the Red Scare had like been going on for a while, and I'm sure it spread mm. out like a lot of Ireland. So yeah, I'm sure a lot of the, uh, either the Irish people and like also, you know, people that were in the IRA and like Sinn Féin were just like, uh, yeah, we can't have this communism stuff, guys. Like, it's not a good look. We can't do that. It sucks. Um, so then we'll get to the 1970s. So on March 31st, 1970, Intense riots erupted on the Springfield Road in Belfast. Violence lasted for three days, and the British Army used CS gas for the first time in large quantities. About 38 soldiers and dozens of civilians were injured. On the 3rd of April, Ian Freeland, the British Army's overall commander in Northern Ireland, announced that anyone throwing petrol bombs would be shot dead if they did not heed a warning from soldiers. Petrol bombs. Like, we got cans of soup over here, and they had fucking petrol bombs. <laughs> no, so, so petrol bombs are like, you know, petrol's gas. So what I think petrol bombs are, and I'm sure if you Google it, you can confirm this, but I think petrol bombs are just Molotovs. Like, that's yep. all they are. Yes. Oh, okay. Are. Yeah. I thought maybe they were, like, mixing gas with some shit and making, like, a jelly thing or whatever. Like. I fucking wish. I, I know that some of them... Ward, what Molotovs. the fuck are you doing, dude? <laughs> like, <laughs> just play elevator music. It'll be fine. Good to know, for reasons. Yeah. But um, research purposes. This is an educational. <laughs> it's guys, educational podcast here. It's for Minecraft. I swear. On the uh, on the twenty seventh and twenty eighth of June that year, 
Following the arrest of Bernadette Devlin, intense riots erupted in parts of Derry and Belfast. Further violence erupted in Belfast following orange marches past Catholic neighborhoods. This led to gun battles between Republicans and Loyalists. Seven people were killed. From the 3rd to the 5th of July, 1970, the British Army enacted the Falls Curfew. A raid in the Falls District of Belfast developed into a riot between soldiers and residents and then gun battles between soldiers and the official IRA. The British Army sealed off the area, imposed a 36-hour curfew, and raided hundreds of homes under the cover of CS gas. Three Catholic civilians, Charles O'Neill, William Burns, and Patrick Elliman, as well as a British journalist of Polish descent, Zbigniew Uglik, were killed by the British Army. Sixty others were injured, and 300 were arrested. Fifteen soldiers were shot by the OIRA, who saw the situation as another possible pogrom. The legality of this curfew has been questioned since it occurred. Many in the law still hold the opinion it was illegal under UK law. After the change of the UK government, from Labour to Conservative in UK in June 1970, the UK's policy changed and became more open to the local unionist government's influence. At this time, UK Home Secretary Reginald Malding declared in the House of Commons, quote, we are now at war with the IRA. Up to this time, the official IRA and provisional IRA policy was to remain as defense organizations for the areas which had suffered the pogrom the previous August. Malding's statement also offered the opportunity to the British Army CEO of Belfast, Frank Kitson, to put his policies, including the use of counter-gangs, into play. Kitson had previously used these quasi-legal tactics with some success in the Middle East and Africa. Yeah, Dick. So I just wanted to clarify, I think, this, so the counter-gangs are basically British Contras. Like, that's, that's, that's the what they were. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they, yeah, they were like, you know, any other Contra, like, you know, imperialist back militia, they would just, yeah, they were, they didn't wear uniforms. They were like, yeah, we're not associated with the British, I swear. And they were just like, you know, we're not being paid by them. And they would just like go and just like do their dirty work. So the British wouldn't get the blame at all. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's a pretty one-to-one comparison, them and the Contras. Hey, Mike, check out the uh, podcast waiting room, talking about soup cans. Open up that link. Oh boy. Oh boy, buddy. Since we're talking about the IRA. Oh, the soup can launcher? Wait, uh, yeah. what is this? The IRA's recoilless improvised grenade launcher. What? What? Yeah, it's basically their own. Uh, it was something that they used. It was an improvised uh, RPG, basically. Oh, I have seen these and, online before. I've seen somebody yeah. make one of these. I think they made them and like, turned them into a gun. Oh, no. Where did I see this? It was like, I think it was because of the IRA, but like I think somebody else made something similar and, and turned it in for a gun buyback. Although it seems like more work than you need to do for one of those. Yeah, I'm, a lot more work needed. I'm sure you could do the same thing with like a t-shirt cannon or something, you know? I don't know. Yeah, but like one of the uh, projectiles it shows is basically like a fin stabilized soup can that they would <laughs> load with explosives. <laughs> Hold on, I'm scrolling down. This is so sick. Right? Very based. Oh, if we're looking at that, and then you can look at their barracks buster, which is modified from like oxygen tanks. So Ward, is that like a mortar? Yeah, yeah. It's basically, oh, their okay. own improvised mortar. That's sick. That's so fucking cool, right? right. All right, all right. <laughs> We're all on a list for clicking that link. Couldn't resist. People say that capitalism breeds innovation. I mean, I guess they're, <laughs> they're kind of right in that sense because the IRA made some pretty based fucking weapons, you know? Yeah, right. Oh yeah, just soup for my family, and possibly your family. <laughs> so let's see. In August 1971. British forces authorized Operation Demetrius, and internment was introduced. Armed soldiers launched dawn raids throughout Northern Ireland, arresting 342 people suspected of being involved with the IRA. Most of these arrested were Catholics who had no links with the Republican paramilitaries, and many reported that they and their families were beaten and threatened by soldiers. This sparked four days of violence in which 20 civilians, two IRA members, Patrick McAdory and Seamus Simpson, and two British soldiers were killed. 
Fourteen of the civilians, including the Catholic priest, Father Hugh Mullen, were killed by British soldiers, eleven of them in the Bally Murphy Massacre. Winston Donnell, 22, became the first Ulster Defense Regiment UDR soldier to die in the Troubles when he was shot by the IRA near Clady, County Tyrone. An estimated 7,000 people, mostly Catholics, were forced to flee their homes. The introduction of internment caused a major long-term increase in violence. Do you have anything in here about uh, internment? Declan, did you want to talk about that at all? So I think, I'm sorry if it wasn't clear, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that um, internment was just like, uh, t- like political prisoners. So they just basically like imprison, they started just like imprisoning people who affiliated openly with the IRA. So they're just like, yeah, going, you're. Okay, so that's when you get like the hunger yeah. strike of Bobby Sands or whatever, like. Um, that was, that was a little bit later, but like, yeah, that was when they started taking political prisoners. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know if like internment meant that they actually had like camps like the USA did. Cause if you say internment here in the U S like it means that obviously like. I, I'm, and, and again, I'm not exactly sure, but I'm pretty sure that's what it meant. But yeah. no, I guess probably just cause of the climate of Ireland, you can't even have outdoor camps like we do here. They have to have, you just put them in, in prisons. <laughs> All right. So let's see the civilian massacre known as bloody Sunday took place on the 30th of January, 1972. 26 unarmed civilians were shot, of whom 13 were killed and one fatally wounded by the British Army during a massive anti-internment demonstration in Derry. One of the dead, Gerald Donaghy, was a member of the Fianna Aran and reportedly had nail bombs on his person. After a lengthy examination of the evidence in the inquiry's report, Lord Saville concluded that, quote, in our view, Gerald Donaghy was probably in possession of the nail bombs when he was shot, but noted, quote, for reasons given elsewhere in this report, Donaghy was not shot because of his possession of nail bombs, end quote. So he had the nail bombs, but that was just a coincidence because they were going to shoot him anyway. This was the highest death toll from a single shooting incident during the Troubles. You know, so now we can get into the based actions. These are the bombings conducted by the IRA and affiliated organizations in England. So on the 17th of June, 1974, the provisional IRA bombed the Houses of Parliament in London, injuring 11 people and causing extensive damage. On the 5th of October, the IRA carried out the Guildford pub bombings. Four British soldiers, William Forsyth, Anne Hamilton, John Hunter, and Carolyn Slater, and one civilian, Paul Craig, were killed by PIRA bombs at two pubs in Guildford, England. The Woolwich bombing on November 7, 1974, killed two people, a British soldier and a civilian, and injured 28. The IRA threw a six-pound... I've never seen this word before. Ward, do you know what galignite is? Oh, let me see. I was looking at improvised weapons, sorry. It's definitely like uh, a flammable metal, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, let me look that up. I like how I'm the resident weapons expert. I mean, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Commissar of Defense for the Turn Leftist People's Republic. <laughs> Why is it I'm sorry, guys, but I refuse I refuse to join the uh the Discord government thing. No, like, why? It's fun. I can't I can't do it, dude. Yes, you can. It's, it's just it's you too, just it's too LARP, I can't role. do it. Dude, LARPing's fun. Oh, okay. It's just um improvised explosive. Okay. Like a uh, improvised plastic explosive. Am I saying that right, Galignite, you think? I'm just going to keep well, saying let's it that way. Let's That's see right. if I can... Is there a pronunciation on this fucking page? All right, so the IRA threw a six-pound Galignite bomb with the addition of shrapnel through the window of the King's Arms pub in Woolwich, England. Gelignite. Oh, Gelignite. All right, Gelignite. Cool. So the 21st of November Birmingham pub bombings claimed the lives of 21 civilians when bombs exploded at two pubs in Birmingham, England. This was the deadliest attack in England during the Troubles. The quote, Birmingham 6, would be tried for this and convicted. Many years later, after new evidence of police fabrication and suppression of evidence, their convictions would be quashed and they would be released. So who actually did it then? 
I'm not sure, but my guess is that it was either IRA members that didn't get caught or... False flag. Yeah, false flag. Like, the British probably did it and just were like, oh, the IRA fucking did this. Damn. Yeah. Um, On the 17th of June, 1978, the PIRA killed an RUC officer, Hugh McConnell, and kidnapped and murdered another, William Turbot, near Cross Maglin County, Armagh. The following day, loyalist paramilitaries kidnapped a Catholic priest and vowed to hold him hostage until the RUC officer was freed. However, they released the priest shortly thereafter under pressure from the authorities and church leaders. In December 1978, the kidnappers were charged with the kidnapping and murder of a Catholic shopkeeper, William Strathern. On May 4, 1979, Margaret Thatcher of the Conservative Party wins a landslide victory to become Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, defeating the Labour Party who were in power for five years. Being the Iron Lady, Thatcher took a firmer stance on the IRA than previous Prime Ministers. Blit. Blit. Not based. Cringe. So getting into the 80s now. In October of 1980, Republican prisoners in the Maze, a political prison in the British-occupied North, began a hunger strike in protest against the end of special category status. The strike was called off in December of that year. So I guess special category status was that they were political prisoners, so they had, I guess, different treatment than if they were just regular prisoners or... Yeah, they were put, like, in, like, if you were associated with the IRA, you were thrown in the Maze. If you were captured in the North, yeah, you went to the Maze, pretty much. If you were, like, high enough of a threat, they would put you there. But yeah, that was what the special category was. It was for members of like left-wing extremism, pretty much. To make an example of you. Yeah. Oh, the IRA stole that stuff. That explosive. Oh, the, the jelly night? <laughs> yeah, they didn't even make it themselves. They stole like commercial grade stuff from a um, <laughs> Irish Industrial Explosives Limited factory. Base. Nice. Yeah. Like yeah, multiple um... times. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, on the 1st of March 1981, the Republican prisoners in the maze began a second hunger strike. After 66 days on hunger strike, prisoner Bobby Sands, who was the first and only prisoner to acquire a seat in Parliament while incarcerated, died in the maze. Nine further hunger strikers died in the following three months. The strike lasted until the 3rd of October that year. On September 25th, 1983, 38 Republican prisoners staged an elaborate escape from the maze prison in County Antrim. One prison officer died of a heart attack after being stabbed by an escapee, and 20 others were injured including two shot with guns that had been smuggled into the prison. Half of the escapees were recaptured within two days, another drowned in County Fermanagh while trying to evade the police after the escape. Others were later captured, but some evaded capture in the Republic of Ireland or the United States. 2017 Stephen Burke film Maze was inspired by the escape. That's a really good movie. Like, I, I think everyone should watch that movie. It's yeah, we very good. Check that out. Yeah. Okay, so now we can get into uh, the Brighton Hotel bombing, which resulted in one of the, uh, the most base quotes ever. So on October 12, 1984, the PIRA carried out a bomb attack on the Grand Hotel, Brighton, which was being used as a base for the Conservative Party conference. Now, we had mentioned this briefly in our uh, Margaret Thatcher episode because we talked a little bit about IRA and the troubles, but it's good to get into it in detail here. So let's see, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher escaped harm. Oh, unfortunately. That's too bad. <laughs> a long-delayed time bomb was planted in the hotel by IRA member Patrick McGee with the purpose of killing Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and her cabinet. We were staying at the hotel for the Conservative Party conference. Based. Although, <laughs> although Thatcher narrowly escaped the blast, five people connected with the Conservative Party were killed, including Sir Anthony Barry, a sitting Conservative MP, and 31 were injured. The bomb detonated at approximately 2.54 a.m. on October 12th. The blast brought down a five-ton chimney stack, which crashed down through the floors into the basement, leaving a gaping hole in the hotel's facade. A fireman said that many lives were probably saved because the well-built Victorian hotel remained standing. Thatcher was still awake at the time, working in her suite on her conference speech for the next day. 
The blast badly damaged her suite's bathroom, but left its sitting room and bedroom untouched. She and her husband, Dennis, escaped injury. She changed her clothes and was led out through the wreckage along with her husband and her friend and aide, Cynthia Crawford, and driven to a Brighton police station. The IRA claimed the responsibility the next day and said that it would try again. Its statement read, Mrs. Thatcher will now realize that Britain cannot occupy our country and torture our prisoners and shoot our people in their own streets and get away with it. Today we were unlucky, but remember, we will only have to be lucky once. You will have to be lucky always. Give Ireland peace and there will be no more war. Based fuck. <laughs> yeah, dude. It's seriously the most based fucking thing imaginable. Can you imagine, like... I mean, okay, I'm not going to even say that. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine, like, just you bombing? You think I'm bad? Like, I know, dude. Oh, my I'm God. just saying, like, can you imagine, like, bombing, like, any kind of, like, political figure or whatever, and then not only having the balls to do that, but then when it doesn't work out, then you come back and write him a postcard and be like, yeah, you know, we're going to keep doing this over and over again. you got to be lucky every time. We only going to be lucky once. We're going to get you. Badass. That's all. That's all I'm trying to say. Yeah. Part of me kind of wonders if it worked out for the better that they successful and what i mean by that is just imagine the campaign and the martyrdom that europe would have made thatcher if she was actually killed by the ira like imagine the legislation that would have gotten written to even further push leftism you know away i mean ireland would have been like instantly fucking occupied i don't know i mean you think that, like, just having her almost get assassinated wasn't enough? Like, I feel like they probably still got as much as they were able to get done, done, just because of what happened. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's also, uh, what I'm saying is I think it played out the best way it could have, because if mm. it would have went any further, the blowbacks probably would not have been worth it. What's that word? Darling, the accelerationist. Well, I don't know if it would have been good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it just kind of worries me to think about just all of a sudden Margaret Thatcher being printed on everything in England as this heroic martyr who died by these terrorists. Well, getting to the next session here, she obviously is going to use it to her advantage still. Um, so Thatcher began the next session of the conference at 9.30 a.m. the following morning, as scheduled. Ugh. Uh, she dropped from her speech most of her planned attacks on the Labour Party and said the bombing was, quote, an attempt to cripple Her Majesty's democratically elected government. Just that phrase, Her Majesty's democratically elected government. It's like, it doesn't fit. It doesn't really work. Like, yeah, where's the, there's no ideological consistency in that statement. Yeah. I want to take everything I just said back. It would have been better if they would kill <laughs> Thank the you, buddy. Because <laughs> all of that stuff would have happened, and then the IRA would have just rose up even stronger, Conrad. Yes, buddy. That's the ceiling I know. I was wondering where you were, sorry, buddy. Sorry. I just needed... Uh, we're back. Sorry. Sorry. Certainly had his dinner. He felt a little groggy, and now he's back to being himself. I got you're it. You're not you when you're hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's see. This is the scale of outrage in which we have all shared, and the fact that we are gathered here now, shocked but composed and determined, is a sign not only that this attack has failed, but that all attempts to destroy democracy by terrorism will fail. They always sound like a badass when they, when they you know, survive something, like, narrowly. And she has the fucking nerve to call, like, what they're doing, you know, fucking occupying Ireland a democracy. Like, the, right. on top of all that shit. Jesus fucking. Yeah, that's not the terrorism, it's the people who are fighting back against you. So one of her biographers wrote that Thatcher's, quote, coolness in the immediate aftermath of the attack and in the hours after it won universal admiration. Well, not from me, fucker. Yeah, no. Her, defi- <laughs> her defiance was another Churchillian. Ew, that's, I don't even like that word, Churchillian. Oh, ew. that's so Ugh. gross. Her defiance was another, go ahead, Declan. No, no, that's fine. 
<laughs> I was just I was gonna say some whack shit. Just go ahead, buddy. Fuck Winston Churchill. Just fuck Winston Churchill, dude. Just fuck it's that not whack at all. Fuck Winston Churchill. <laughs> fuck that guy. Um, her defiance was another Churchillian moment in her premiership, which seemed to encapsulate both her own steely character and the British public's stoical refusal to submit to terrorism. Immediately afterwards, her popularity soared almost to the level it had been during the Falklands War. The Saturday after the bombing, Thatcher said to her constituents, the fact that her, her levels before that were at their highest during a fucking war, like... Dude, the Falklands, too. Like, the, just the most unnecessary shit over, like, what? Some fucking island that just, like, happens yeah. to be off the coast of, like, what, Argentina? It's like, dude, it's yes. fucking useless. It's the yeah. most useless strip of land. Why would you go to war over it? Just fucking leave them alone. It's because, oh, just because you claimed it, like, what, like, three centuries ago? Who the fuck cares? Right. Whatever. The Saturday after the bombing, Thatcher said to her constituents, quote, We suffered a tragedy not one of us could have thought would happen in our country. And we picked ourselves up and sorted ourselves out, as all good British people do. And I thought, let us stand together, for we are British. They were trying to destroy the fundamental freedom that is the birthright of every British citizen. Freedom, justice, and democracy. I fucking hate this shit, dude. I fucking hate all, like, it's just like, it's so smarmy, and it's so like, yeah, you try to kill me, and you just miss, so, yeah, we're all right about everything. Like, fuck you. At the time of the bombing, the miners' strike was underway. Morrissey, frontman of the English alternative rock band The Smiths, joked shortly after, quote, the only sorrow of the Brighton bombing is that Thatcher escaped unscathed. Nice. <laughs> I know, that's like, that's probably the only good thing Morrissey has ever fucking said, too. That's the like, other thing I hear is that he's yeah. like a piece of shit, but I don't know exactly why. He's just a right-wing fuck, like, that's it. He's, he's like, uh, I don't know, he, uh, he went on, apparently he's in trouble because he went on stage and, like, rapped in the Union Jack, like, literally, and he had, like, all this fucking, like, British shit all over the fucking stage, and he was just yeah. like, yeah, I want all those fucking Muslims to get out of here, and, like, uh... and just went on this whole fucking rant about how there's a shit ton of, like, you know, he's like, the Arabs are taking over the UK, blah, 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 Jesus. and he's like, yeah. After why, didn't, why didn't it like Thatcher? She should have been right up his alley. Like I know, right? But like right after 9-11, something just something clicked, man. Oh, okay. I don't know what age. it was. Right, he's but... a boomer. I got it. That's all I had to say, buddy. He's a boomer. Um, all right. So David Brett wrote in the book Morrissey, Scandal and Passion, that, quote, the tabloids were full of such remarks. Jokes about the tragedy were cracked on radio and television programs. A working men's club in South Yorkshire seriously considered a whip round, quote, to pay for the bomber to have another go. A whip round, I guess, is a fundraiser. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I'm yeah. not, like, too terribly versed in, like, all Irish-English terminology, you know. It sounds about right. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume a whip round is a fundraiser to pay for the bomber to have another go, which is fucking hilarious. In 1986, the English punk band The Angelic Upstarts celebrated the IRA's assassination attempt with their single, quote, Brighton Bomb. They released an album of the same name in 1987. It's so based. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll talk about uh, Patrick McGee. Once investigators had narrowed the seat of the blast to the bathroom of room 629, police began to track down everyone who had stayed in that room. This eventually led them to, quote, Roy Walsh, a pseudonym used by IRA member Patrick McGee. McGee was tailed for months by mi 5 Special Branch and finally arrested in, in an IRA flat in Glasgow. Despite days of interrogation, he refused to answer questions, but a fingerprint on a registration card recovered from the hotel ruins was enough to convict him. He was arrested on June 24, 1985, with other members of an IRA active service unit while planning further bombings in England. He wasn't stopping. He's like, he knows they're coming after him. He's like, no, I'm just going to keep doing this shit. Yeah, catch me if you can, motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, like, it said MI5 tailed him. I don't know the difference between MI5 and MI6. I think MI5 is like the FBI, 
And then MI6 like does you know all the weird shit in the Middle East. So I thought MI6 was fake. I thought it was just for James Bond movies. Oh really? I thought MI6 was real. I've seen like uh, I thought it was a play on MI5 because MI5 is the real one. And maybe like, no, this is MI6. This is the sequel. It's like it's like if you had the NSB, no, N- the NSA. <laughs> MI6 is real, but for the longest time they used to deny it that it existed. Uh yeah, like, so, like, even with all the James Bond shit, they used to deny, like, no, there's no such thing as MI6, we just got, like, MI5. <laughs> and then Damn. I think it was, like, the 90s, maybe early 2000s, that they're like, yeah, there's such a thing as MI6. And it's like, yeah, we fucking know, guys. Yeah, because of yeah, course. It's, it's just not really anything like James Bond, at least, yeah. unless you can read between the lines of what James Bond is actually about, which is basically uh go kill this person who has information on fucking prince charles fucking children <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it's a quote-unquote secret hard drive like yeah so maybe it's fairly accurate you just, yeah. you just have to get get the get what's going on but yeah no you're right mi6 is a real thing but it's like a really fucking watered down cia yeah i would highly recommend everybody check out also the kill james bond podcast it's like one of my favorites. Like they just did a GoldenEye episode, which is my favorite Bond movie and my fucking favorite video game of all time. But like um, the Kill James Bond podcast is um, Alice from Trash Future and huh. Abigail from, uh, uh, what is it? Philosophy Tube. Hmm. And another person, can't remember name. Anyway, three people that talk about James Bond movies, they're all Marxists and they trash James Bond all the time because he fucking rapes women a lot. And uh, yeah, but they still do that. Yeah. But it's still, it's just a good podcast. It's very funny. And uh, as a fan of James Bond movies my whole life, it's uh, particularly interesting to me. But uh, take a drink. Mike recommended podcast. Good word, sorry. Uh, yeah, so just a quick glance. Like, the difference between MI5 and MI6 is, like Sterling was saying, like, the MI6 is more CIA watered down kind of thing because they're not mm-hmm. the CIA, of course. <laughs> um, and then MI5 is more, like, combination of, like, Homeland Security and like the fbi okay does that mean that there's secretly an mi7 oh god let me, look, let me look <laughs> jamie look uh, up mi7 yeah J- hey jamie pull that shit up <laughs> uh, mi7 was a branch uh, i don't know if it's currently still a thing of course i think it was just during uh oh wait no Holy fuck, there's an mi7 <laughs> formed by thatcher to hunt down the fucking ira Wait till we find out about MI8. <laughs> yeah, MI7's, I guess, still around. Um, like defense communications, public relations, media operations, and inf- information operations, and psyops. Hmm. What about the MIB? The Men in Black? Come on. <laughs> Jeez. All right, so back to Patrick McGee. Many years later, in August 2000, McGee admitted to The Guardian that he carried out the bombing, but told him he did not accept he left a fingerprint on the registration card, saying that, quote, if that was my fingerprint, I did not put it there. In September 1985, McGee, then age 35, was found guilty of planting the bomb, detonating it, and five counts of murder. McGee received eight life sentences, seven for offenses relating to the Brighton bombing, and the eighth for another bomb plot. Justice Sir Leslie Borham recommended that he serve at least 35 years, describing McGee as, quote, a man of exceptional cruelty and inhumanity. Later, Home Secretary Michael Howard lengthened this to whole life. However, McGee was released from prison in 1999, under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, having served 14 years, including the time before his sentencing. A British government spokeswoman said that his release, quote, was hard to stomach, and an appeal by then-Home Secretary Jack Straw to forestall it was turned down by the Northern Ireland High Court. What's up, Declan? Oh, he just said his release was hard to stomach. I'm like, fucking deal with it, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Cope. 
In 2000, McGee spoke about the bombing in an interview with the Sunday Business Post. He told interviewer Tom McGurk that the British government's strategy at the time was to depict the IRA as mere criminals while containing the troubles within Northern Ireland. And he says, As long as the war was kept in that context, they could sustain the years of attrition. But in the early 1980s, we succeeded in destroying both strategies. The hunger strike destroyed the notion of criminalization, and the Brighton bombing destroyed the notion of containment. After Brighton, anything was possible, and the British, for the first time, began to look very differently at us. Even the IRA itself, I believe, began to fully accept the priority of the campaign in England. Of those killed in the bombing, McGee said, quote, I deeply regret that anybody had to lose their lives, but at the time, did the Tory ruling class expect to remain immune from what their frontline troops were doing to us? I mean, not wrong. In the 1990s now, so over the course of 80 years, the leadership of the provisional IRA changed. Key positions were shifted from the veterans of the South to younger activists from Northern Ireland. Jerry Adams was the leader of Sinn Féin, the left-leaning party. In 1993, he, along with the Social Democrats and John Hume, started talks to begin the peace process. What's up, Declan? Those goddamn Social Democrats, man. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I imagine that the role that they're going to play in this is to just water down anything that, the, that Sinn Féin and the IRA are going to say, but what can you do? So on the 24th of October 1990, the PIRA launched three, quote, proxy bombs, or, quote, human bombs, at British Army checkpoints. Three men, who were or had been working with the British Army, were tied into cars, loaded with explosives, and ordered to drive to each checkpoint. Each bomb was detonated by remote control. The first exploded at a checkpoint in Koshkwin, killing the driver and five soldiers. The second exploded at a checkpoint in Killeen, County Armagh. The driver, James McAvoy, not the Scottish actor, <laughs> uh, narrowly escaped, albeit suffering a broken leg. But one soldier, Andrew Grundy, was killed and 23 other soldiers were wounded. The third device failed to detonate. So that's actually fucked up. Like, uh, these uh, human bombs, like literally strapping somebody into a car with a bunch of explosives and then forcing them to drive to where you wanted to explode, that's crazy. Like, I can't imagine why they would even do it. Like, why wouldn't they just go to, like, an open field or something? Like, if you're going to blow them up anyway, like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I mean, they, they kidnapped, yeah, these three, like, loyalist guys, and they're just like, fucking drive the cars out there, dude. We don't care. Like, you're cannon fodder at this point. Which actually makes me wonder if, um, like, I wonder if they knew that they had explosives or if they just, like, I'm going to have to look more into that just for my own notification. I want to see if they, like, put all the explosives in the trunk and then put these guys in the car and said, drive back home, you know, and then, like, when they got close, just blew it up. So on the 22nd of, no of November that same year, Margaret Thatcher resigned as British Prime Minister. In January of 94, the broadcasting ban on Sinn Féin was lifted in the Republic of Ireland. This meant that key figureheads of the party could now use their own voices to speak on the radio, and not have voice actors read their words in their place. I remember talking about that in the Thatcher episode too, how they couldn't have their voices on the radio at all. They had to like literally write statements and have other actors read them for them. It was nuts. In August 94, the IRA ordered their first unilateral ceasefire. Despite the ceasefire, the IRA remained active without fighting. On February 9th, 1996, less than two years after the declaration of the ceasefire, the IRA revoked it with the Docklands bombing in the Canary Wharf area of London, killing two people, injuring 39 others, and causing 85 million pounds in damage in the city's financial center. Sinn Féin blamed the failure of the ceasefire on the British government's refusal to begin all party negotiations until the IRA decommissioned its weapons. The IRA reinstated their ceasefire in July 1997, as negotiations for the document that became known as the Good Friday Agreement began without Sinn Féin. In September of the same year, Sinn Féin signed the Mitchell Principles and were admitted to the talks. The UVF was the first paramilitary group to split as a result of their ceasefire, Spawned in the Loyalist Volunteer Force, or the LVF, in 1996. In December 97, the INLA assassinated LVF leader Billy Wright, leading to a series of revenge killings by Loyalist groups. A group split from the Provisional IRA and formed the Real IRA, the RIRA, as we mentioned before. In August 1998, a Real IRA bomb in Omaha killed 29 civilians, 
the most by a single bomb during the Troubles. This bombing discredited, quote, dissident Republicans and their campaigns in the eyes of many who had previously supported the Provisionals' campaign. They became small groups with little influence, but still capable of violence. After the ceasefires, talks began between the main political parties in Northern Ireland to establish political agreement. These talks led to the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. This agreement restored self-government to Northern Ireland on the basis of, quote, power sharing. In 1999, an executive was formed consisting of the four main parties, including Sinn Féin. Other important changes included the reform of the RUC, renamed as the Police Service of Northern Ireland, which was required to recruit at least a 50% quota of Catholics for 10 years, and the removal of Diplock Courts under the Justice and Security of Northern Ireland Act of 2007. All right. Interesting enough. So I guess that's the terms of uh, the end of the Troubles. And I guess that marks the end of, like, I guess you would say the most violent period of fighting between the IRA and the Loyalists and everything. So still makes for good memes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think my personal favorite is the one where it's like IRA members when there's a petrol shortage or something. And it's like that guy just like smashing shit in his room and it's like, you know, really sped up. Yeah. He can't use it for car bombs. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess that's that pretty much covers... The end of, like I said, the Troubles. So I guess, unless we have any like closing thoughts, we can wrap it up there. Unless anybody else wants to say anything about the IRA in general. Yeah, I guess the big takeaway from it is probably that the IRA is a great example of what a motivated group of people can do against even as huge of a colonizing force as the English and the English army and everything that's at their disposal. It's like, if there's any lesson you could take from it, I guess it would be that. These people were willing to use any tactic, and you could see the loyalty that these people had, that they were willing to just like some of the fucked up, admittedly fucked up shit that they were doing, but it's like they were able to win their independence in some semblance just by doing this stuff. So, yeah, they didn't have a DSA absorbing <laughs> members, though. <laughs> All right, cool. So, we'll wrap it up there talking about the IRA. Mad Boy, or sorry, Declan, I should say. That's Declan, fine. thank you so yeah. much for writing up all these notes. I really appreciate it. This was really cool. And uh, I always loved just even hearing about the IRA, let alone doing an episode yeah. on them, getting to joke about. Uh, all the IRA and car bomb memes. It's always fun. So, Oh, yeah. Um, so do you have anything that you would like to plug? Any kind of uh, stuff you want to promote? Um, I mean, I have, uh, I have a Twitter. Um, I'm not really on there that much, and I don't have that, much, uh, that many followers, but it's at underscore madboy1312. And uh, if anyone wants to follow me, I just like, well, it's just literal leftist text shit posting. That's all it is. I can't imagine any of our listeners would be into that. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, like, I know nobody would want to follow me, but, like, yeah, I'm just going to plug it anyway, you know? Yeah. But um, <laughs> I'm also in a band. We just do, like, it, it's basically just queer tanky punk. That's all it is. Nice. Um, we're on Instagram. It's at div.stagram, so D-I-V dot S-T-A-G-R-A-M. And Instagram, we have, yeah, we have uh, an EP that's in the works. It's going to come out hopefully sooner rather than later, but we have one song out. We have a single and uh, we have a music video we're working on right now. And we have another single coming out. I want to say Saturday. So yeah, when the EP drops, give us a listen. Oh yeah. I mean, by the time this episode comes out, that will have been released. I'm sure. Cause like I said, we're weeks behind. So definitely oh, yeah. go and uh, check that out. If you were hearing this episode, cause it'll be out by then. For sure. Uh, Sterling, go ahead and put Twitter when you're done yawning. I uh, know, man, I'm so tired. Sorry. <laughs> It's at turn leftist pod. Ward? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at millennial leftist. You can also follow my backup at millennial Marxist. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ward Lolly, W A R D L A W L E Y. Yeah. And then uh, let's see, for Cosper, 
I will plug their uh, Patreon. That's patreon.com slash C-O-S-P-E-R underscore. And for Jaron, his website is jaronperlman.com, J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N.com. For everything else related to the podcast, check out the link tree. That's link tree slash turn leftist. And, uh, and I want to thank, as always, our Patreon subscribers. So thank you to Sigmund, Stuart, Pete, Colton, Ian, Michael, El Robert, Allison, Zach, James, Raven Enigma, Marvin, Kay Hrida, Not Drinking Water 69, Second James, Mike, Mad Boy, hey, hey, <laughs> Christian, Elam, Venture X, Jaron has the best opinions, Jared, Hayden, another Jared, Bill Killionaires, Bro You Know Marks, David, Tristan, Devante, Your Mother, Charlotte, a third James, Bishop Mew, Rural Marxist, MC, John Bowie Fan 420, Aaron, Kyle, John Claude Manhands, Mail, Bill, Blackwater Janitor, and J. Reese. Thank you all so much. What's up, Declan? Oh, I just have one more thing uh, before oh, you play, before you blast Black and Tans. Um, yeah, uh, it sucks that Jaron or Cosper couldn't make it because I would love to hear what like Jaron and you know and what Cosper had to say about uh, the IRA and shit like that. But yeah, I would have too. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. feel like Jaron would have had some pretty base takes on oh, that yeah. style of like anarchist kind of uh, revolutionary movement like that. Even though I mean they were Marxists, but like their tactics were very decentralized, which is oh cool. yeah. So. All right. Well, that's all I have. So thank you again to all our Patreon subscribers. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please, as always, leave us some good reviews on whatever podcast app you're listening to us on. Give us some comments or subscribe to us on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel where we broadcast all these episodes as well. I know that's not exactly like the best format for podcasts, but we're there. And uh, I would say, like, yeah, go ahead and subscribe to us, but I also don't know what the benefit is. Like, if you're listening to us on here or any other app, <laughs> app like, for the first, does it really matter? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I know that uh, Romero uh, from the Nicaragua episodes has been commenting on YouTube videos and just shout out to Ramito. Love that guy. Thank you so much for coming on and giving us so much dope information. That guy was great. Okay, that's all I got. So thank you guys. Thanks again, uh, Declan, for giving us all this great info. This was fun. For sure, dude. Yeah. Cool. All right, see you guys. Yeah, see you.
say Godspeed with a verse or two of singing this fine call. 